0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Discovering the Cause and the Cure for America's Healthcare Crisis, a physician's memoir. And the author is Dr. Roger Struby. And Dr. Struby joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Roger. Hello, how are you? Well, we have a major task in front of us to help us understand, especially as laymen, layman, we hear so many medical terms, we hear about Obamacare, we hear all the pros, the cons, where everybody knows we're paying a lot. And here you come along, a very experienced physician, and we're going to learn more about your background in just a moment. But you say this, the healthcare system remains in crisis, and it's hurting the overall economy, Join an insider as he examines the problem and offers solutions. So you see the problem from a doctor's point of view, and you have solutions. How did you come about to see clearly to offer solutions, especially against all that you hear in the news and you know all the things that are so confusing to most of us as laymen?
2: Well, I started off as a physician and actually a family practitioner in private practice for about the first uh, 15 years of professional practice. And I was actually quite deeply into that uh, self-deception that I, I could really uh, do things off the top of my head and solve people's problems based on my memory and how well I knew medicine. And towards the end of that practice, I got exposed to uh, the folks that were organizing some of the first managed care organizations, and they seemed to solve an awful lot of the financial problems. So towards the end of my my uh, 15 years as a practicing physician, I organized one of the first uh, practice associations that became associated with an HMO and got more deeply into managed care, and understood what the what the process was, or how the, it related to patients, how how it put physicians together, and it, it just made sense to solve a lot of the financial problems that were beginning to rear their ugly head at that time. And following that, I was uh, became a, a an administrative physi- uh, physician with one of the uh, very successful insurance companies in Wisconsin that was with Employers Health and that started in 1985 and at that point I began my education in administration and in quality improvement and in electronic support for decision making because obviously insurance companies at that point uh, were very uh, computer literate so my education in computers and in uh, quality improvement and in systems analysis, really took off at that point, and that's when I uh, I put the two together. You know, how do you how do you practice medicine efficiently? What are the tools you need to make uh, appropriate decisions so your patients are kept as healthy as possible? How do you finance that so that it, you keep the cost as low as possible and the outcomes as good as possible for the patients? And that really sums up my career. And of course, the book is organized as a memoir, so I take the reader of the book through the experiences I had that formed my view of the uh, medical delivery system of the our medical industrial complex i like to think i was in the belly of the beast for about 30 years where you go from there and how you how you put it together how you solve the problems how you organize the financing of it and how you help doctors make appropriate decisions
1: well from a layman's point of view from a patient who Goes to the doctor from time to time. Uh, all we know is that my insurance premiums keep going up. Pharmacy products keep going up. It's, it seems like all we see is increased costs. And we see hospitals building more and more wings on their buildings and doing more and more. And, of course, the technology is incredible, uh, and all the advances in medicine, we certainly want it all. But, boy, it just doesn't seem, it's such a catch-22. We, so, we feel so frustrated. In fact, you say that Obamacare is not health care reform. It's increased insurance regulation, uh, you know, written by the big pharmaceuticals and big insurance. So, I mean, it's all seems so confusing. How can you help us, doctor?
2: The first thing is to really understand that Obamacare is kind of a misnomer. It's really not Obamacare. It's one of those derogatory type of terms they use to scare people off. It really has very little to do with health care. They're just kind of getting the the nostril of the camel in the tent as far as affecting how medicine is practiced. The biggest issue was the uh, regulations that were imposed on insurance companies, and uh, that was an attempt to, kind of, to control costs. But Obamacare, if we can use that term so it kind of sums it up, really is a very tiny baby step in the right direction. And where it went wrong was uh, they failed to really push for a public option at the beginning of this political process. The public option would have actually introduced real competition into the system if the for-profit insurance companies had to compete against the Medicare option and of course people know Medicare straight Medicare costs about three percent to administer and big insurance companies are somewhere between twenty and thirty percent to administer you could immediately cut out 10 or fifteen percent of the administrative cost so. The private, for-profit insurance carriers would have to compete against a uh, very efficient claims processing operation. And, of course, in order to counter that, a lot of the politicians talk about how inefficient the post office is, how inefficient Medicare is, etc. Obamacare missed the boats because early on they just didn't push for the public option which would have meant we'd have competition in the marketplace so we do not have competition in the marketplace because the public option was uh, missed early on in the political process
1: it's it's difficult to understand how you could reduce from 10 20 30% all the way down to 5% just by going through Medicare, I mean, you still have to pay administration costs. Why would it be so much lower?
2: Well, essentially, you don't see ads for straight Medicare. So there's no advertising budget. Medicare does not do these uh, pre existing conditions, they don't exclude people because they're sick. They take on everybody because Medicare is essentially a self insured um, product. In other words, they say they're going to insure people that are over 65. Once you qualify at 65, there's no screening procedure. So the people that are in insurance companies that do all that evaluation of pre-existing conditions and refusal of care and denial of of uh, whatever simply aren't there. So the administrative cost of that large section of uh, administration goes away. Uh, Medicare does not have a extremely large well-paid sales force with a lot of uh, advertising and glossy stuff. I mean, I I am on Medicare. I go online and I uh, select my Medicare product and uh, it's all over. I don't I don't have um excessive amounts of advertising coming my way from Medicare itself. Now there are private companies that administer the Medicare product. And they have uh, extra services involved. And, of course, I like a few of those extra things that are uh, offered by those Medicare uh, products. So I have one of the Medicare uh, products that are offered as part of the Advantage plan. Again, being an ex HMO medical director, I understand all those products, and I just picked one of the best ones.
1: Now, of course, we are all concerned about quality. Uh, we see uh, doctors who we often put up on pedestals. Uh, we uh, are frustrated they get paid so much at the same time, though we want the best. It's a real, uh, <laughs> it's a real maze of feelings that we have as patients, but how do we get the best care and lower the cost of this care
2: well it's difficult to do with our present system first we have to understand what quality is all about and essentially quality is the uh, delivery of health care that uh, is medically necessary in other words stuff that works What you want to do is you want to get stuff that works. What we should be paying for is paying for stuff that works. In a free society, you can get all kinds of stuff. You can get any kind of medical care you want. Anything that the physician is empowered through licensure in the state to deliver, you can get. You can get plastic surgery. Much of it is not paid for because it's elective and it's not medically necessary. So that's kind of the concept of part of the the cost-saving piece is to pay for what's medically necessary. Now, In order to make that determination, you have to have people that really understand the science of medicine and make the policy determinations that say we're going to pay for this stuff and we're not going to pay for that stuff. And those determinations have to be made based on science, not on politics and not on special interest groups and uh, the pharmacy people that want to sell drugs at high prices and all that sort of thing. The layperson has a lot of difficulty determining what quality is because they're relying on their physician. The physician has to believe that they know what they're doing, otherwise, for most most doctors, most of us, It'd be very difficult to sleep at night if you really understood the air rate that is being produced by most doctors, and they can't see it because they're right in the middle of doing it, and they're in the middle of uh, the, the philosoph- philosophical view that a lot of most of what they do is appropriate. When you back off from that and you you get a higher view of what's actually happening in medicine and when they do the studies, about 40% is documented as inappropriate, ineffective, harmful, wasteful, whatever. The layperson really... Can't make that determination. Most lay people don't understand enough about medicine, medical science, and how these determinations are made to understand whether the doctor is offering a service that is uh, appropriate, effective, safe. You know, efficient, reasonable cost. Uh, There's no way of judging that. So, uh, patient. advocacy people that talk about competition being just give the money to the patients and let them bargain with their doctors, it's actually going to go in the wrong direction. So part of the problem is the physician's understanding of what's happening out there. And part of the problem is the patient's inability to really make solid quality decisions.
1: Who helps the uh, patient then? Who helps the patient? Uh, Is it government? I mean, I don't I want government that doesn't seem to know much about anything. I want somebody in the medical field helping me.
2: Well, we're really not talking about taking the power out of the hands of the physician. What I'm talking about is providing the physician with the tools that are necessary to be able to practice quality health care, quality medically necessary health care. Right now, physicians do not have those tools and the reality is that the memory-based system for doctors using their memories to make decisions is kind of like draw, shoot, aim. It's like uh, trying to remember uh, enough about the uh, drugs you're prescribing to know all the interactions when you're actually writing for the drugs and most physicians, in fact, the human mind is not capable of doing that. So the concept is how do you get tools into the hands of the doctors that they can use when they interact with their patients to make proper decisions with the input of their patient in real time as they see those patients? How do we upgrade the decision-making process of the physician working with the patient to try to achieve the best outcome?
1: So we need new computer models, new software to help us?
2: Well, that's one of the central issues that has to be developed now. There are uh, these tools being developed. In fact, the uh, Veterans administration has some of the more advanced uh, electronic medical records, and they are putting in decision support tools. in other words, intelligent uh, medical decision support. It's important to understand that's support that's not something telling doctors what they must do. It, it provides the doctors with warnings when something is being done that is totally against medical science, and it also says, well, here's the, here's the top thing that will, will probably help. Here's the next thing that may work uh, and, and will may work as well. Then it becomes uh, the doctor's responsibility with the patient's input to make a proper determination using up-to-date, state-of-the-art information presented at a time when they're actually seeing the patient. So that is the piece that really saves the money. Now, people say doctors get paid too much. Doctors actually don't get paid too much. They're they're really kind of in the, in a slot, depending on their training and expertise, where their their compensation, their personal compensation is not a big issue. What is a big issue is the fact that physicians order about twice as much stuff as is necessary. So I did a little uh, spreadsheet on the number of doctors in this country and the amount of money spent on uh, total health care in this country. I came up with a figure for $3 million for each and every physician in the country. In other words, each doctor on average spends $3 million a year. Wow. Now, they take home a hundred thousand one hundred and fifty right. maybe if you 're a neurosurgeon uh, you might make four hundred thousand a year. I happen to think neurosurgeons a good one <laughs> is probably worth four hundred thousand sure. a year. Sure. No. I think our primary care docs are worth more than the hundred or a hundred and a half they get, and in fact, if the tools are in the hands of the physicians to make proper decisions up front, there would be more power in the hands of the primary care docs to make appropriate decisions. And the the whole thrust of this is to decrease the amount of unnecessary services that are being provided to people by providing docs with the capability of working with state-of-the-art medical decision-making tools. And that's really kind of the summary. I mean, if you can... If you can help physicians make appropriate decisions that eliminate, uh, let's say, 30%, let's just, see, I believe it's about 50% of stuff that's not appropriate. There have been documented uh, studies done by Dartmouth, the Dartmouth-AFTLIS, that say it's 40%. That's a lot of money. I mean, we're talking $2.5 trillion a year in healthcare. So if you could cut about a third of, let's say we cut out 600 or seven hundred billion dollars per year out just by giving docs the appropriate tools to make quality health care decisions. Sure. We can save the American economy.
1: Well that makes sense. The problem
2: is the cost of health care. The cost of labor right. the cost of labor is out of sight, partially because of the cost of benefits. And our
1: and our expectations as patients too. And uh, boy, that's a that's a tough Uh, decision to make where you uh, keep applying health care or medical procedures and where you stop. Uh, That's a tough one, so uh, we're not going to solve that in this interview. (laughs) We don't have any more time, doctor. We really appreciate you being with us. Uh, a great discussion, and it sounds like you really have zeroed in on some uh, appropriate and much-needed solutions the title of the book, Discovering the Cause and the Cure for America's Healthcare Crisis, a Physician's Memoir, and the author is Dr. Roger H. Strube. And Dr. Struby, tell us how to get your book.
2: Well, you can uh, sign on to Amazon and order it through Amazon by searching for the title or my name. Uh, I have a website uh, that will direct you to various places. website is... Roger H. com, and uh, just do a Google search and you will find lots of sightings for the book.
1: And Strube is spelled STRUBE. Thanks so much for being with us, doctor. Thanks for this interview on I Universe Radio.
2: And thank you very much for giving me the interview.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the not so soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1
3: Eastern, noon central on Dougie Nat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The not so soccer mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, notsosoccermom.com was born. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on TogiNet.com, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today 903 617 6899. 903 617 6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning Rx can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning Rx, the radio show with Martin Krueger, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on TogiNet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title
1: of the book, The Danger of Progressive Liberalism. How America is Threatened by Excessive Government, Multiculturalism, Political Correctness, Entitlement, and the Failures of Both Political Parties. And the author, Charles Gross. And Charles joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Charles. Hello. Good to have you with us.
4: Well, thank you, Steve. I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, I want to read a couple of things that you have written to set the stage. Uh, the title really uh, says it all in many ways, but let me just add a little bit more. You say, my book examines what is wrong with the direction of policy in this country, how that it is caused by the influence of progressive liberals, along with the lack of integrity by politicians of both parties, and what we can do to reverse it you say this book is written by a regular citizen one with an above-average understanding of the workings of the government and the threats from the left as well as from those who would destroy the american culture and of course you're going to talk somewhat about this religion called islam as well of charles why'd you do this uh, you know obviously a lot of people are frustrated and some people angry and Oh, a lot of people are getting more involved in the Tea Party movement and other things, but why publish the book?
4: Well, Steve, I, I have to say it, it's sort of a, an accumulation of, uh, well, points of despair in looking at the direction the country is going in. Uh, it is sort of a lifetime event for me. You know, I became concerned, particularly, uh, you know, in the in the Bush years, the George Bush years, as the Republicans gained control, you know, of, of both sides of, of the Congress and the presidency, and yet they failed to rein in excessive spending. They failed to, uh, you know, uh, um, produce good policy about the environment, about energy, and so forth. And basically, what I've seen is a caving in to the more aggressive um wishes of the far left and so then, when the elections of two thousand and eight gave control of most of the government to um, a radically high spending uh, sort of uh, you know progressive liberal almost socialist strategy um, it was more than I could take, so I had to basically speak out, say what I wanted to say, and, and, uh, hope to spread the word, hope to maybe inspire, uh, a lot of people who believe similarly to me, uh, who are somewhat passive and frustrated and don't know what to do with their, uh, their frustration and their fear over, you know, the direction of the country. So that's basically my motivation. I I do want to, uh, more than anything, I would like to sort of prod or spur people into thinking and more action in terms of monitoring their politicians, um, voting for their own best interests, and so forth.
1: Why do you think, as you make a case for uh, some of these things we'll talk about, you say that Liberals consistently say one thing and do another. Why is why is that? Well,
4: it's it's um it's interesting. Um, liberal politicians, for example, like to talk the talk of, uh, um, you know, well, they like to act as though they care about the environment, they care about minorities, they care about this and that, and yet. In reality, they don't really exhibit that behavior nearly as much as they would like to have everyone believe. Uh, for example, um, uh, you know liberals like to paint conservatives as as racist, uh, as sexists, you know, as homophobes, as a lot of things because liberals need to play these cards in order to keep, the fires, to, the fires of the fires of of distrust and divisiveness that helps keep them elected. See what liberals are able to do is is divide people into different camps. You know, African American, uh, Muslim American, Asian American, whatever American hyphenated, and then promote the notion that these groups are victims, and of course the villains being. The conservatives on the right, uh, the so-called wealthy, the, the people that work and have things. Um, so <clears throat> my observation is the people that care the most about the environment, for example, or that rather that do the most of the, for the environment, are more likely to be conservatives. I think the people who are less likely to dwell on the differences among us who believe in an American culture, not multiculturalism, I believe those people that believe in, in the one American culture are conservatives, not liberals. Liberals like to keep everybody in their own little camp so they can keep them all fired up and mad all the time and feel like victims.
1: Well, there's a real debate from uh, the left and the right about the virtues of big government. Uh, so many people yeah. ad, uh, advocate that big government solves problems, and, of course, the Tea Party uh, activists and others on the right are, are against that. Uh, tell us about your view of big government.
4: Well, this nation was founded, first of all, on the idea that the federal government would have a limited role uh, in governing the lives of people and we were founded on the notion of individual liberty uh and individual um self-reliance um there there is a notion among those on the left and that includes a whole array of different philosophies from socialism to you know marxism to communism to progressive liberalism and so forth that the people are, if left to take care of themselves, people are too selfish and too, you know, self-centered to care for their fellow man. And, and, and so their belief is that it is the role of the government to provide for everything. We hear the terms, you know, cradle to grave or womb to tomb, government um, uh, programs. And th- that is what those on the left Tend to, if not believe, at least support um, the notion that the government can do it better for you. Now, what we see historically is it doesn't work. Um, as governments take over more and more uh, of the daily, you know, functioning uh, of the people, um, you know, before you know it, the, the fewer people are working to provide for more and more people, and that's where we're headed. We're we have less than half the country um, paying paying in income taxes, or, or way less than half the country taking less from the government than what they give. So, um, as that grows, it's just obvious that as more and more people uh, join the ranks uh, on the entitlement and in, in the entitlement programs. And fewer and fewer people um, are left to pay for it that cannot it, it's not sustainable it's not as government grows the cost grows, and the number of people um, required or the number of people that aren't supporting it shrinks uh, another aspect from the liberal side is the notion that the wealthy uh the wealthy don't pay enough. You know the, the the greedy wealthy don't pay enough to help support those in need. Well, that's just you know, there's such a such a farce. Um, you know, we already tax our corporations at the higher rate, almost double the average around the world. Uh, you know, we, we we take away a third of uh, better than a third of what you know so called wealthy uh, people make, and the the majority of the so called wealthy, the people on the, that the uh those on the left call wealthy are not really wealthy um you know to the average guy you know makes 50 60 40 whatever thousand a year 30 20 nothing um you know the the notion that somebody that might make two or three hundred grand a year is is rich is extremely misleading um You have all these small businessmen who who may take in and may earn a quarter of a million, half a million, whatever. Um, but what they're doing is, with their money generally, is they're buying a decent house, a decent car, putting food on the table for their family, and then reinvesting much of what they made back into their business, which creates jobs, uh, creates goods, and so forth. So this, this wealthy, the notion of taxing the wealthy is it just it just doesn't work and furthermore if you talk about the super wealthy let's say people that make seven figures or better a year a million or more a year there just aren't that many of them so there's no way that you can raise income taxes on only the highest uh... earners and have much of an impact at all uh... you must raise taxes on all levels of income you must raise taxes on the middle class if you want to really in- increase revenue. And, of course, the increase in revenue is short-term because the, uh, the negative effect on the economy of raising taxes ultimately leads to fewer taxes collected. That's been proved time and again. And, Steve, I have a lot in my book, you know, The Danger of Progressive Liberalism, a great example of uh, about policy. Um, John Kennedy was president in the early 60s and had a, a, comp, a sizable majority in both the House and Senate of Democrats. When they, the, country, uh, the economy was a little sluggish um, when he took over, and one of the things that he did was he proposed, and Congress passed a reduction in taxes on the wealthiest Americans. Now, this is a Democrat. A completely Democrat Congress and president that realized that by doing so they could stimulate growth in the economy, stimulate business growth, and it worked. And so we had a nice little upsurge in prosperity caused by that. Now, you think of the liberal left of today, the Democrat Party of today, can you imagine a proposal coming from them, such as that which came from Kennedy and his Democrat Congress? Won't happen. So it's a great example of how the left has moved. Uh, they're no longer uh, they're no longer as influenced by the moderate or conservative Democrats. Um, they, they're taken over by the far left, who only wants to scream about taxing the wealthy. And we look at Obama's speech the other day, when he said he railed on and on about corporate. Dec- tax break for corporate jets for private jets and he, he suggested that uh, if we don't take away that tax break that we might not be able to fund uh, meat inspection by the uh, you know, FD for so Drug Administration, Food and Drug Administration or we might have to cut out college loans or we might have to cut out services for elderly and, and this is totally a total... Uh, just avoiding the facts. Uh, the facts are that the corporate jet tax break was part of Obama's stimulus package that was passed in February of 2009. Did he mention that, No. And another part is that it's estimated that corporate tax uh, break is about $3 billion over 10 years, over the next 10 years, whereas... Um, these programs that obama suggests we'd have to do without if we don't drop that corporate tax that 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 tax break for corporate jets those other programs are in the hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 10 years in other words what he's talking about is not even a hole drop in the bucket but it's a tactic it's a tactic to uh of the the, the position of The liberal left, which is class warfare. Uh, That's what Obama and many of the far left do. They, as I mentioned before, keep the fire stoked of animosity and feeling like a victim through class warfare. It is always to them, you know, the poor uh, downtrodden proletariat against the rich people, the evil, greedy, wealthy people. Um, we have so,
1: about we have about a minute left and I want you to mm-hmm. address how Islam represents a threat to Western culture and we don't have a whole lot of time.
4: Okay. Um you know, granted that there are uh, you know many, perhaps the majority of people who practice uh Islam uh want to live in peace. Granted. However, there are a billion and a half uh, Muslims around the world, and even a small minority of them uh, that want to practice the more fundamental uh, Islam that is uh, outlined in the Quran, uh, it's those people practice a religion of violence and hatred. Uh, no other major religion in the world condones murder and violence anymore as a means to advance its agenda.
5: Uh,
4: and Islam does. Let's... No one should fail to understand that Islam teaches the subjugation, conversion, or annihilation of non And again, it's the only major religion that does that. It is a threat. They intend to kill us. They intend to subjugate us. They intend global domination. And that is not... Uh, well, it's certainly not what um, what we want, I don't think.
1: The title of the book, The Danger of Progressive Liberalism. How America is Threatened by Excessive Government, Multiculturalism, Political Correctness, Entitlement, and the Failures of Both Political Parties. The author is Charles Gross. Charles, tell us how to get your book.
4: Well, I do have an author website. That would be www.charlesgrossbooks.com uh... also available out there if you uh... put in any search engine uh... the title of the book you'll find me on amazon books a million and dot com and other digital channels as well so it is available in a hard copy a soft copy and in in digital versions Um so uh... now if you google my name you're going to come up with about a hundred charles grosses who happen to be authors uh... surprisingly but um, if, you, um, uh, if you Google the danger of progressive liberalism, or not Google or any other search engine, excuse me, I don't mean to be partial to Google, um, you'll find me.
1: Well, thank you, Charles. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here.
4: Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete
3: Diggs. Girlfriended is on DougieNet. And then be a part of Girlfriend It, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central.
0: You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me.
3: Check out the website, GirlfriendIt.com. Don't miss Girlfriend It with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, on Toginet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Battered Earth, and the
1: author is Deborah Hillerin. And Deb joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Deb. Hi, how are you today? Well, we're going to read a few things that you have written just to set the stage for this very controversial book, Uh, certainly a book that is well at least the theme is in the news today uh, a lot we're talking about climate change and this is what you say battered earth is a novel that is comprised of international intrigue peril and perseverance as a few brave individuals try to save the planet from environmental calamity while hidden powers seed to destroy them while hidden powers seek to destroy them, I don't know any other book that uses climate change sustainability in a fast-paced novel that has the potential to be a bestseller. So, why the motivation, Deb? Why did you go this direction?
5: Well, I was very interested in getting a uh, book to market with modern themes um, that uh, you know nobody has really broken through and been able to get a bestseller. And many people have dealt with this whole topic of uh, climate change and sustainability in more of a doomsday type of a plot. And what I wanted to do was do an intelligent um, fiction so that people really could uh, be drawn in and uh, be really uh, taken by the story and have it be a fast-paced story and a page-turner. And uh, then the background is um, pretty much the um, extreme weather, which actually we're kind of experiencing today. Uh, The book was set in the near future, but uh, so many things have happened that uh, a lot of it is around uh, the events like we've had in the last uh, six months and last year.
1: Now, the majority of the book takes place from Stockholm to St. Petersburg. Why that? Why those places?
5: Yes, uh, the people come are coming from all over the world, but they are going to a climate forum in Stockholm, and that actually happens to be an area that I traveled uh, uh, that same route. Uh, So a lot of the book is based on facts. Um, It's uh, obviously fiction, but it is based on facts. Uh, For example, in one area there talks about canisters of nerve gas that were left over from World War II on the bottom of the Baltic Sea, and all that is, you know, reality. There are canisters that are eroding on the bottom of the of the sea. Uh, but the idea was to to make this a page-turner, uh, not to, like, belabor the subject of the pros and cons of uh, climate change uh, because, you know, people disagree with facts or whatever, but it's more a viewpoint of um, these events, these type of events happen, um, and the idea that it's happening worldwide, and based on the Baltic is, is just based on where I traveled, and my knowledge base, I think, in that whole area.
1: Is that why you say The Battered Earth is a suspenseful novel that has a conscience?
5: Yeah, so I, uh, the idea is just uh, when you're reading, you have to think just a little bit, uh, and it's in a, in a new kind of a breakthrough area, what I'm hoping to do. And the conscience is uh, the characters uh, want to do good, uh, the main character Is somebody, she's the head of a private foundation and, uh, she's kind of tired of having to go help people after disasters. Uh, she wants to. Um, help them before they've been harmed. And so that's kind of her change in strategy. And again, it's based on the realistic events that happen, not so much trying to convince people about the fa- facts of whether climate change is happening or not, or the, you know what scientists are doing it, about it. It's just more taking the situations and uh, uh, involving people in those situations.
1: Well, give us some more specifics about Nicole Hunter and what she's involved with, what uh uh, foundation. She's the head of, and what they're doing.
5: Okay, uh, Nicole is coming from Seattle. She's a director of a richly endowed private foundation, and she's, uh, like I said, been disillusioned trying to help people after they've been harmed. Um, you know, it's a nonprofit, and uh, you know, kind of think, uh, oh, kind of like the Gates Foundation that has deep pockets, so they can uh, really effect change. And so she has the ability to operate a little bit, uh, between, uh, politicians and, uh, business people, and so she's kind of this independent third party that is trying to prevent de- disasters, and, uh, her controversial stance has put her career in jeopardy and her life in danger, and, uh, she, you know, trips over herself sometimes because she is, um, uh, can be stubborn at times, and, uh, but is idealistic and is out to really make a difference.
1: But as you put it, there are unseen forces assembling to sabotage any breakthrough that could challenge existing global energy markets. So it's status quo here we're dealing with.
5: Yes, the status quo, uh, and it's about how you change the status quo because there's so many things in process, you know, like um, just the way business is done. It's hard to change you know, how how things are done because uh, people's livelihood depends on it and uh, it's um, just a, a difficult thing to do because people are kind of entrenched in their positions. And so she's trying to, um, you know, make some changes that she thinks will help humanity and she runs into, unknowingly, runs into some opposition against that.
1: Well, then, of course, there's this mysterious agent, as you describe him, Oliver Odin. Is that it, Odin? Yes. Uh huh. Tell us about Oliver.
5: Well, Oliver Odin is uh, an intelligence agent who's sent out to investigate ominous threats that have been um, picked up by intelligence agents, and um, the evidence leads him to the to the Nicole and uh, this group of brainy scientists that are in uh, happen to be in Stockholm for this climate forum. And uh, he, when, you know, a scientist are gunned down at a reception held by a U.S. US senator, um, it really becomes apparent to him that this is the group where powerful forces will stop um, at nothing to to get, you know, this group. And so he's involved a little bit reluctantly because he uh, normally does... Um, uh, in international arms and things like that. This is kind of a new area for him, and he's not quite a believer in the whole thing, but his job is to protect and to find out, you know, if there's an international um, threat um, that is going on. So he is, yeah, he's, uh, he's a good counterpart to Nicole, kind of a good balancing counterpart, and uh, so their, their uh, interaction is a big part of the book.
1: And who is the antagonist, or the organization, or some of the main people?
5: Oh well, that's a secret. <laughs> that's a secret. Uh, you'll find out. Uh, uh, there's, uh, you know, student uh, students involved, and uh, but uh, I think uh, what I did not want to do is make this the standard uh, CIA, FBI um, kind of crime novel type of thing. So. If you think, uh, but there is an
1: extremist group here that's trying to stop all this.
5: Yes, there is an extremist group who's uh, you know they uh, want to be in the news and they want to want to stop it and uh, um, just like it happens every day uh, around the world as well. And uh, but you have to find out on exactly who it is.
1: But there is a uh, person that you share with us and just in general talking about your book, his name is what? Zephyr?
5: Zephyr, yeah. Zephyr. is the, um, the, the, uh, representative of the student extremists, And he's, comes from, um, Saudi Arabia and was recruited uh, as a child, wound up in the orphanage and was recruited, um, to do extremist activities. And he's very intelligent, uh, grew up with a very difficult past. And, uh, uh, you know, it's one of those ones that he has a lot of hatred, uh, just because of what happened to he and his mother growing up. And there's a lot of background on that in the book. And uh, yeah, he's he is a a player in the whole plot, and uh, um, he is a main character that uh, um, can do a lot of harm.
1: And terror terrorist movements seem to recruit young people.
5: Yes. Uh, and this you know vulnerable uh, young person who has absolutely nothing going for him, but um, this guy is smart, and his goal uh, he wanted to to join uh be, be a terrorist that knew about computers and was smart and had a- few, and had a future he had no intention of going in and blowing himself up um, that's kind of a twist on the student terror terrorist as far as becoming a little more sophisticated and uh, uh you know aligned toward uh, uh Extremists um, in a college kind of a setting that he has contact with from a distance,
1: and usually be uh, change is difficult because we have money involved.
5: Yes, exactly. That's uh, you know people's livelihood, pocketbooks uh, makes it so change is difficult. And uh, uh, you know I think good intent people have all have good intentions. That sometimes it's just a matter of reality and. You know, I worked at Nike for 25 years. I understand business and I understand reality. And, um, you know, this book does not, um, you know, try and promote a viewpoint. It's discussing more about how difficult change can be and uh, um, the plot weaves around that.
1: And also the importance of idealism and perseverance.
5: Yes, which I really believe in. You just can't give up. You know, you have to, uh, things may not be going your way, but uh, you really have to, Charge hard and, and, and not give up, and that's how uh, change is made.
1: Well, it's an interesting, timely story because of all the extreme weather that has hit the, the nightly news uh, so recently. Where do you think, of, as far as your story, are you giving any solutions here? Or are you trying to uh, give some moral theme, or how, how are you uh, addressing any of that?
5: Well, you know, I've always been um, fascinated by storms and, uh, you know, the increasing amount of storms, and people are debating um, the facts, and uh, which is really good that they debate, debate the facts. And what I want to do is get people more involved in the conversation. Is this the reality? Because sometimes people are so busy fighting things that... Um, you know, it's, they need to kind of just step back and think, wow, you know, we don't want people harmed here. And, um, you know, these incidences are real. They are happening. Are they because of climate change? Are they because of El Nino? Are they because of what? It's all something that we should all be, you know, engaged in and talking about. And um, I think uh, that's the key part of the book is just to get, engage in the com- conversation. The book doesn't, there's no uh, perfect solution. Uh, there's just people don't have enough knowledge at this point. But the, fer- ferocity, the ferocity of the storms uh, and uh, the terror that is happening, you know, poor Joplin and all those who have experienced the severe storms that have occurred this year, I mean, that's almost unimaginable. And uh, I don't know, it just seems to me that it's, it's a topic that should be in movies, you know, it should be um, in uh, newspapers, you know, and, and not so much of a, we're going to die tomorrow, but, hey, what can we do about this in a positive manner? And that's what this book is about. You know, it's, uh, it is fiction, and uh, the, the plot is exciting, but it is just to involve people and get people talking about it and see what we can do um, to change things. And I think the whole uh, the idea of uh, perseverance and not giving up on a topic this big, you know, because we don't have all the right answers yet. People are, are searching for the answers. That's what, what I was really aiming for.
1: So who does the book appeal to and why?
5: Oh, that's interesting. You know, I came from a very marketing background, and you know, so it's was about targeted very specifically to a niche. But I have found that it's broader than I than I thought. Um, on my fan page, you know, I have a lot of young people, um, which I, I was thinking it would be more like, oh, 30 to 50 um, people who read a lot. And uh, both men and women like it uh, because we have both uh, Nicole and her count counterpart uh, Oliver, so it seems to really appeal to both men and women c- because there is quite a bit of uh, action and uh, suspense. So um, it's turned out to be a lot broader than I thought, and uh, young people are also very, very interested in the subject, and in the, in, um, they are reading it and uh, want to discuss and that kind of thing. So it's much broader than I would have normally thought, uh, because again, my, my my training is always, always target very tightly, but... Um, it, I think it's, it's designed to be kind of a popular, bestseller type of book, and that's what I really want it to be. Um, and I'm hoping that's the, re- the direction it's going in.
1: Well, we have time for just uh, a minute or so worth of closing thoughts. What would you like to share with us, Deb?
5: Well, let's see. Um, suspense novel with a conscience, I think. Uh, you know, Fiction can be both entertaining and motivational and a way to explore new ideas in a non-threatening manner. And I really hope just to draw people in who maybe not normally would be involved or interested in the subject. And change is difficult. You know, as humans, we get set in our ways, especially when it threatens our pocketbook or traditional belief system. And, um, you know, that would be something I'm very interested in. I also love the characters and their point of view, because I always think people, every person has a reason to be who they are and, uh, Sometimes they can be misguided, and sometimes they can be idealistic. But you know, there's something in their backgrounds that really creates that. And this book explores that. And I guess again, just the leaving with uh, not giving up even when the odds don't look good. Uh, those are the people who will leave the earth in a better place.
1: The title of the book "Battered Earth," and the author is Deborah Hillerin. Deb, tell us how to get your book.
5: Well, the book is on uh, Amazon.com at the moment. It just was re- newly released, and also BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, iUniverse, it's that earned editor's choice, and Rising Star Awards out of the block, so I was happy about that. And then hopefully you'll, you can order it at your local bookstore.
1: Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio